We're in James chapter 5 as we're just continuing on. There's a little bit of a sad note in me because uh, I'm seeing the end of James. And I'm, I'm not looking forward to being finished with this preaching series because I've grown so much and learned so much, and I hope you have as well. The last couple of weeks, we were talking about the six verses prior to where we are today. The first six verses of chapter 5 are really James uh, talking about those who are oppressors, the rich who are oppressors to those who are poor and righteous. And his words have been a deep warning, haven't they? They've he's sounded the alarm for them to tell them that one day things are going to be different, a day in the future where they will be standing face to face with the eternal judge of the universe. And their money and possessions won't be any good to them there. They won't have those. And if anything, they're going to be a testimony or evidence against them, how they've used that uh, in ways to disadvantage other people. And God is going to avenge those who are poor, those who are the oppressed, and he is going to make it all right in the end for all eternity. Now, the next few verses, James shifts his attention away from the oppressor, and he's focusing on the oppressed, those who have been uh, really moved against by others and he's telling us how we can live in a sustained way in that life and how uh, we might move through the the period of persecution or oppression or or being cheated whatever it is uh, move through that with great integrity so let's begin chapter 5 we're going to begin in verse 7 and read a couple of more verses be patient he says Brothers, until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he it is received. The early and later rains. Now, early and later rains are a little bit different for Israel than they are for us. The early rains are actually in the fall, uh, in the planting rhythm and season in that area of Palestine. And the later rains are those rains that come in what is the spring so he says in verse 8, You also be patient, establish your hearts, be resolute, he's saying, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, Father, as we heard just a moment ago in song, speak to us by this word. Build your church up with these words that we might honor the Lord Jesus all the more. In his name we gather and now pray. Amen. Now, as I see it, in these three verses, there's three imperatives, and three times he reminds us in some way about the coming of the Lord. And so I'm going to sort of move the message in that direction. What are the imperatives, and what's the promise about the Lord's coming? And we'll focus in those ways. Uh, first and foremost, he's talking to people who are oppressed and harmed and the, the cheated of the world, and how we might live in that difficulty that we face and do it in a way that is honorable to the Lord and rewarded for all eternity. Here's what I want us to recognize up front. We should all experience that we uh, know that we are going to experience persecution. We should all expect that, that persecution and oppression are just a way of life for those who are saved. I could trail in a number of different ways the scripture has revealed this to us. One of those is in the book of Acts where the Spirit of God is telling us that we enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. And Jesus said to his followers, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. 
And the Apostle Paul saw that persecution as a great opportunity to share in the fellowship of the suffering of Jesus Christ. Those experiences of persecution would bring him into a sweeter fellowship with Jesus Christ. Peter pointed to those realities of Christians who suffer, and he encourages them to have the right perspective of that. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at all at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you don't be surprised this is not strange the lord said it would be this way but rejoice insofar as you share christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed if you are insulted for the name of christ you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of god rest upon you uh, there's no question that there is a growing swell in the United States and among Western countries that is destined to crash on us, and that is a greater angst, if you will, an anti-God movement, a greater anti-Bible movement, a greater swell of anti-Christ and anti-Christian uh, perspective that many people have. If you look at the current trends right now you see that in many many articles that are written many many quotes that are given around the country today if you look at the the near history in our country you'll read about teachers like one in new jersey who was suspended for giving a, a bible to a student you'll know football coaches like the one in in uh, washington who was actually placed on leave for just saying a prayer at the end of a ball game a fire chief in atlanta who was Dismissed for self-publishing a book defending Christian moral teachings, a Marine who was court-martialed for posting a Bible verse above her desk, and on and on there are more and more uh, stories about the persecution of the saints who are standing with Christ. This anti-Christian movement is going to increase. The activists right now are calling us bigots and haters because we hold on to the statements and the beliefs and the traditions of the institution that God himself has established and we are told that we are waging a war on women simply because we are lovers of life and don't believe in abortion so how do we respond to that kind of opposition to Christ and his message and his commands and his people today's passage in James chapter 7 uh, chapter 5 verses 7 through 9 tell us how to respond and it says, first, be patient. Secondly, be uh, sustained in your heart, steady in your heart, uh, established is the way he puts it in the scripture. And don't turn on one another. You've got this, this um, animosity that might be building with the scene as it's unfolding. Don't turn on one another. Be careful about that. So let's just work through those real quickly and just uh, be encouraged by God's word. First, be patient. The word in the original language there would be easily translated long-suffering. That uh, God is patient with us. He is long-suffering towards us. And in this case, James says, be patient, be long-suffering with the circumstances until the Lord returns. And it's until the Lord returns because when the Lord returns, everything's going to change. Uh, he is going to reconcile all things. He is going to avenge all those who need avenging. God is going to rectify so the Gospels end in a very uh, common way. They end 
in relating in narrative form the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the means of our salvation. They reference the Lord in his post-resurrection ministry, which is primarily he presents himself as being resurrected in a bodily proof. He shows himself to be resurrected. He tells people, touch me, let's eat together, uh, let's spend time together. 500 witnesses that heard and saw Jesus after the resurrection, before the ascension. And in the final chapters of the Gospels, they give narrative to us, telling us what Jesus saw is very important. He opened the eyes, the understanding of his followers, the disciples, to the scripture, the understanding of scripture, and he shared with them the essential purposes of the Holy Spirit to empower them and how it was, an, it was necessary for them to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You couldn't do it on your own strength. And he told them to make sure that they're making disciples among all the nations, that they baptize people, and they teach others the message of Christ. Now at the end of a couple of those, Luke and Mark they go a little bit further in that and reveal the ascension of Christ. In very, very small little uh, narratives, they tell about the ascension of Christ. Then Luke, who is writing to Theophilus, tells an expanded version of that in Acts. And Acts begins with this, this passage about uh, the Lord when he had said these things, talking about the Great Commission and giving them the the uh, statement that they were to have his marching orders as they were looking on he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight and while they were gazing into heaven as he went behold two men stood by them in white robes and said men of Galilee why do you stand looking into heaven this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven the same glorious way that you saw him depart You'll see him return again. And what a great, great truth that is. So we would all do well to focus as the disciples were focusing. They were focused on the Lord's return. They were looking to the sky, wondering, is today the day that he would come again? So let's just dial back a, a few minutes ago and where we started, the end of the Gospels. Here's the things that Jesus wanted to make sure we knew about. Here's, here's the way the Gospels end. Number one, that Christ is alive. And if you and I are going to have the right perspective in the day we live, we ought to have the perspective that he gave to the disciples, those followers of his, and that was number one, to know evidence he is alive. And then to read and understand the Bible. Jesus gave them insight to the Old Testament passages. Now he gives us the Holy Spirit to not only help us to understand the Older Testament of Christ, but the New Testament of Christ. So read it and understand it. Live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Be be filled with, indwelt with the Holy Spirit, be filled by the Holy Spirit so that you might be empowered uh, in your mission. And here's the mission, to make disciples, to baptize people, and to teach them the things that Christ taught. And then watch for the Lord's return. This is the way the, the Gospels are ending. This is where he wanted the disciples to be focused, and this is where you and I need to be focused as well. So anticipating and being attentive to the Lord's return was essential for the disciples and it's essential for us as well. They must have regularly thought back on the Olivet Discourse that Jesus gave, this teaching there on the Mount of Olives where he said, hey, as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as to the west, so will be the coming forth of the Son of Man. You will not miss it. <laughs> the sky from east to west will light up with the glory of God when Jesus returns again. You won't have to wonder, did he come? No, no, no. The whole world will know. You have no way of missing the lightning when it crosses the sky from east to west. And it is 
thunderous, is it not? There's no missing that. And there will be no missing the glory of Christ when he comes again. So they live their lives with an expectancy of Christ's return, which is obvious in that they wrote about it in 300 verses in the New Testament. It's like it comes up over and over and over. You know why? Because they were focused on it. They were knowing that this might be the day that the Lord would return. So knowing Jesus' promise to come again was a great motivator for them to follow after his mission and pursue him in obedience and all the commands that he gave them. They lived their life with purposefulness and with anticipation, knowing that the Lord would return. Now, the people of the way endured significant persecution and great difficulties in life, and they did it because they had an increasing longing for the return of Christ. In fact, we know that to be the case today. When you and I endure hardship, it makes us hunger for the return of the Lord more. Have you ever noticed that? I can remember it as if it was yesterday. Kay and I were in our 20s. Her mom had a very difficult bout with cancer. And uh, as she died, just nine months after the diagnosis, I remember my wife crying into my chest and saying, Randy, I wish the Lord would return now. That's what hardship does. It turns us to the day which Christ has promised to return to for us and to receive us unto himself. The brokenness of life, the sorrows of life, they pull us towards being attentive to eternity. A greater hope of God's glory and his presence and ultimate and complete healing. So if you're going through suffering and pain, if you're experiencing loss and oppression, then cast your eyes to a brighter day and a great hope of glory, a day that is fairer and bright, a day in heaven where the glories far outweigh the most difficult day of your life on earth. Cast your attention there. Don't lose sight that the Lord Jesus promised he is going to return. And we are bound to have that wondrous promise of being in the land with him. In the 18th century, there was a Baptist minister named Samuel Stennett who was a friend and supporter of the monarch, the reigning monarch at that time, George III. And that gave him distinct privilege and opportunity, political opportunity, for which Stennett refused because he was a minister of the gospel of Christ and he did not want to forego his ministry. So here he is as a preacher and a songwriter. Maybe you don't know him, but you might know of some of his songs. One of the most famous of his songs is On Jordan's Stormy Banks I Stand. The verses are simple, but they are profound statements of heaven's allure, especially in the difficulties of life. When you and I are in the brutal storms of life, as you're on that stormy bank, you can look to the other side and find a promise of God. And over and over, Stennett just reminds us of those truths. Maybe you know the refrain, I'm bound for the promised land. I'm bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. There's a, there's a man with hope and conviction. I'm bound for the promised land. Will you do me a, a favor and just sort of repeat those words? We'll do it in this way with energy and with enthusiasm, with all the confidence of the belief that Christ is coming again. I'll say I'm bound for the promised land. And if you're in agreement with that in faith, you just echo those words back. Let's try it one time. I'm bound for the promised land.
I'm just going to tell you the 8 o'clock service was a little bit more enthusiastic than that. I'm bound for the promised land. I'm bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. All right, let's do this different. I am bound for the promised land. Now, listen to the verses. Ready? On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. I am bound for the promised land. I am bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. Oh, the transporting rapturous scene that rises to my sight. Sweet fields arrayed in living green and rivers of delight. O'er all the wild extended plains shines one eternal day. There God the Son forever reigns and scatters night away. No chilling winds or poisonous breath can reach that helpful shore. Sickness and sorrow, pain and death are felt and feared no more. When I shall reach that happy place, I'll be forever blessed, for I shall see my Father's face and in his bosom rest. Filled with delight, my raptured soul would here no longer stay. Through Jordan's waves all around me roll. Fearless, I'd launch away. I am bound for the promised land. I am bound. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. Stennett's words are great, aren't they? It reminds us to consider that this could very well be the day of Christ's return. But that hymn loses its impact when we are cozy and comfortable in this world. When we no longer dream about heaven's glory. When we no longer look to the eastern sky. No longer want to leave this world behind. When we falsely believe that our possessions are here, then we're going to have difficulty singing and thinking that our possessions rich are over there. So the challenges of life, the stormy challenges of life, even persecution and hatred, animosity, trials and suffering, all those stormy banks help reset us to an eternal focus. So here James is saying, be patient. In your grief, be patient. In your loss, be patient. When you're laughed at, when you're persecuted, when you're made fun of, be patient. It'll reset your vision. It'll take the allure off this world and it'll put it on a kingdom, which the Lord Jesus is coming again to bring you and me into. And it will build an anticipation for his coming the lord has promised that he is coming again now james could have mentioned three different unique words in this text but he chose one very specifically he could have talked about the appearing of christ that glorious epiphania the appearing of christ where it's distinct and obvious that the lord has returned he could have used the apocalypsis an un uh, unraveling it's a revelation it's the magnanimous glorious return of christ 
in power and awesome power, but he didn't determine to use that one. He used the word parousia, which means to be the side of, the side of, coming along with somebody. And I think that's important because he's been talking about people who have been oppressed, people who have come against us, those who are in opposition to us and our message and our God and our Bible. And he says, the Lord is going to come again. And when he comes again, he will stand beside you and you with him. Our greatest hope in the troubled world in which we live is that Jesus is coming again and he's coming to be with us forever and us with him. Everything's going to be all right when you're standing side by side with Jesus. It's like a little boy that feels threatened, but he knows everything's going to be all, all right as daddy is standing side by side with him. So patience in this life is possible when we have a great acceptance and anticipation that the Lord is returning. Now James gives us an illustration to be patient by pointing to a farmer. He says the farmer prepares the ground, he plants the seed, and then patiently waits on God to do what only he can do. Only God's going to be able to provide the rain. Only God is going to be able to provide the sunshine, the photosynthesis. Only God is going to be able to do those things. Take something dead, a seed, and put it in the ground and actually bring life out. Only God's going to do that. So the farmer has to be patient. He does what he does, but he relies on God. And God always comes through. In that way, James is saying, think of it in the rhythm and the plan that God has established. God has a rhythm when planting and harvesting. God has a rhythm in Christ's coming, ascending, and returning again you do your thing let god do his thing keep your eyes focused on him so that's how we be patient we're patient knowing that the lord is coming again patient knowing that god can do what only god can do and we're going to trust and rest in that now look what he says secondly establish your hearts as you anticipate the lord's return and what he's talking about there is let your heart be steadfast. Let it be resolute. Let it be steady. Now, you've noticed in James now that I've read this passage more than once that he repeats being patient. Here it is again. You also be patient. Establish, steady. Make your heart resolute for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So we're establishing in strength. One writer says that's a, a firm courage and an attitude of commitment to stay the course no matter what you face. Be steady in heart, anticipating the Lord's return. You can endure today because you know the Lord is coming at a time in the future. Hold on with steadiness. Now that'll prop you up and that'll support you as you're going through difficult times because that truth will help you to stand knowing that the Lord is coming again. There might be burdens that are pressing down on you. That hope will help you to stand and be steady. When you're weary, when you're lonely, when you're broken, when you're sorrowful, strengthen your heart with the certainty that the Lord's coming is at hand. Now, you might say, like a number of people, now, Randy, every generation since James has been thinking that the Lord's coming is at hand. I want you to know, it is. It is. None of the apostles taught at any point that the Lord was coming in their lifetime. Jesus did not teach that either. In fact, he said on his ministry here on earth, he said, I don't know the time. The Father knows the time. 
But what he does tell us is that it is at hand. Now, that at hand is a big truth. It means it's coming. It's certain. But that can be very relative. When I was seven or eight years old, I had a birthday party scheduled that my parents were putting together with some of my friends and, of course, my siblings. And I remember on that day, I was really anxious for that hour to come. If you're my age or a little bit older, you didn't have birthday parties every year, did you? You, you skipped a few years, and so they were a big deal. And this was the birthday party day. So it was a big deal. And I remember coming down the hall from my bedroom, and I'd go to the kitchen because that's where the analog clock was on the oven. And you could always go to the oven clock and see what time it is. And I knew what time the party was, and I was watching, and it was a long way away. So I'd go off and I'd try to do something, distract myself, come back, and it's like that clock did not move. Honest, I thought the clock was broken because it did not move. Now, probably it was five minutes earlier that I checked. I can't tell you how many times I checked, but I checked that clock more and more times throughout the day. It was moving at a snail's pace for me. Now, if you ask my parents about that day and about my party, they would say, man, we don't have enough time to get everything done. In fact, there is more to do than we have time for. Time is slipping away from us. If you ask my grandmother who lived with us about my birthday, she might say something like this, my, my, how time has flown. Can you believe that boy's eight years old? <laughs> At hand is all relative, isn't it? Now for us, it seems that the Lord is tearing it seems like he is slow. It's all relative. It's at hand. And I do know this. God the Father has a day that has already been prescribed in eternity past when that day will be. And when that appointed day comes, Jesus, who is standing waiting to return, will come and he will bring his church home to him. What a glorious day that will be. Let your heart be strengthened when you're in difficult days, when the prognosis is not good, when the loneliness settles in, when the grief is overcoming, when the sorrow is full. Let your heart be strengthened. His coming is at hand, and it's closer today than it ever has been. Now look what he says finally. He says, don't turn on one another with complaining since the Lord, the judge, is ready to return. Specifically, verse 9 reads this way, don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It's the third time he's mentioned the Lord is returning. Like many of you, these last months have been incredibly taxing and challenging to us as a staff. Maybe you felt it in your family or among your workplace, your co-workers, your teams, uh, maybe your friends. I regret to say that we were somewhat susceptible to grumbling and complaining against one another. I don't want to be that way, and I certainly was uh, convicted at that point. But we were struggling in the beginnings and in the midst of this crisis to figure out how to do things and how to do them well and with the uncertainty of times, we, we began to be frustrated because it was 
difficult, as you know, to make decisions. And that frustration had a way of turning inward so that we were frustrated with one another, maybe even complaining and grumbling against one another. But we could not let that settle. Number one, that's offensive to one another. It's offensive to our God and whom we are trying to live our life in. It's offensive to the model that we're supposed to be living before you. So we needed a spiritual and mental reset. I tell you how that reset comes. For me and the rest of the team, it comes knowing that you're going to stand before Jesus Christ, who is judge. And he judges everything done in this body. He judges every word and every action and every idle word. He brings into account every thought which he perceives from afar. And knowing that, it brings a, a conclusion that, Lord, I don't want to be and we don't want to be in the place that we are. And that brings a reset. A humility, a confession, a repentance of surrendering to the Holy Spirit that we might draw to the glory of Jesus anticipating the day that he will come again and we will stand before him. So when we face trouble, let us not turn on one another. Instead, let us consciously consider these three things. Number one, that Christ is sovereign over all. So we can trust Him and we can seek His will. I might not like what's going on. I might not like the difficulties that we're facing. But we can know Jesus is sovereign and we can trust Him. You can pursue Him, seek His will in the midst of that. We can also recognize that the Lord's return is at hand, so we ought to live with expectation. Here's one thing, phrase that an old friend taught me some time ago. He said, in light of eternity, what does it matter? That's a, good, that's a good phrase for us to remember. In light of the Lord's return, does what you're wrangling with right now really matter? Christ is sovereign. Christ is returning. And everybody is going to stand before Him. Everybody's going to stand before Him as judge and give an account. So we ought to be living without regret. If you're going to pursue the way of Christ, not turning on one another not being complaining or grumbling against each other because you know the Lord is returning and he's standing at the door ready to judge, then you're going to know him in these ways. Now, may I ask you a question? I know the Lord's returning and his return is at hand. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready to stand before the holy and righteous judge of the universe who requires justice which means every sin must be accounted for and paid for are you ready to stand before him i can tell you without jesus christ there's no way i could stand before the holy god of the universe how could i stand before him a sinner how could i be in the presence of holiness i'll tell you the only way that happens and this is how you ready yourself for that day you pour all your confidence and faith in Jesus because Jesus was God's beloved son who came and lived perfectly righteous, never disobeyed, never broke a single law. God's word was completely fulfilled by Jesus Christ. He was, as the Old Testament would say, was the spotless lamb of God without blemish. The one who knew no sin became sin for us that is he took our sin upon himself and was nailed to a cross 
and Jesus had all of God's justice poured out against all of our sin while he's on that cross. The only way I'll be able to stand before God one day in all of his holiness is to know that Jesus paid the debt of my sin and freed me from it took the debt of sin that was mine and he erased it and gave me all of his debit uh, credit of righteousness took all the sin out and gave me the glorious righteous deposit that was his life i'm so grateful for that i stand before the father declared by the son to be righteous that's the only way now what about you are you prepared for that day it's at hand that day is coming is your faith in Christ Jesus and is it evident that you have denied yourself and surrendered your life to Christ choosing to live out the way of righteousness of Christ Jesus are you ready for that day it's coming are you ready for that day because you will stand before Jesus as one who has been cleansed by him are you ready to stand before him in faithfulness? Is it evident that everything that you're doing in your body today is unto Christ? I know of many carnal Christians. Saved? Faith in Christ? Yeah, by God's grace they are. But they determine not to pursue the way of Christ. Carnality is not what Christ has saved us to. Christ has saved us unto righteousness. We once were a slave to sin, now we're a slave of righteousness. We once had a father, the devil, now our father is God. We were once linked with the world, now we're linked with the kingdom of God. We're citizens of God's kingdom. You and I must live it. Believe it, trust it, speak it, live it. Because we're going to stand before Jesus one day. And he's going to hold us accountable with all that is entrusted to us, including his spirit and his word and his mission. And he'll reward faithfulness. And he will banish all that is not of him. Are you ready for that day? Let's pray together. Lord, in this moment, as you have called us to ready stand before you when you come I pray that there would be some who would be coming to faith either by radio or by the streaming service or recorded service or in this room if there's any who are not prepared by the work of Christ to stand before you that today their life would be surrendered to you and faith would be given to you I trust Lord in your gift of grace unto faith I pray for them today this would be the beginning for the rest of eternity, the beginning of a relationship with you. Glory be to God for that. And for some, Lord, who have just been in their own way, in their own life, not really walking in the way of Christ, I pray that they would ready themselves by choosing this day forward to walk with Jesus, to talk with him, to listen to him, to respond to him, to share his message, to do his ministry and that they would be proven faithful in the end to what they have been called to do. Make us ready, I pray. 
in the powerful name of Jesus.